All right, you guys, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Judges 19 tonight. We're still on the account of the nation of Israel as they have forgotten that God is their king. If you remember from the last couple of sermons, we're not really sure where in like the scope of the history of the Judges account this is happening. It could be happening kind of at the same time as things are going on with Samson, maybe a little bit before Samson or perhaps right after Samson. But one thing is sure. We are given a clear picture of what it looks like when a people who professes to know God seemingly forgets about him altogether. Now, regardless of the revealed truth from the narrator and judges, that there is no king at, in Israel at this time, meaning that they have forgotten actually that God is their, is their king, they have seem, seem to have forgotten God altogether, actually, not let alone the reality that there is no king in Israel. They are just as pagan as the surrounding nations, if not even more pagan, actually, if possible. And the evil, the wickedness on display in chapter 17 and 18 have primed the pump for the wickedness on display in our chapter for tonight. Uh, Dr. Carl Truman, he says that this chapter is perhaps the most sinister chapter in all of the Bible, and that, that it contains the most sinister account of of series of events in all of scripture not the most evil necessarily because the most evil thing in bible and the most evil thing in the history of mankind was the murder of jesus he's innocent the only truly innocent man what were you going to say adam i was just about to ask about that that yeah so the most sinister not necessarily the most evil Uh, you'll see why so yeah i think there's it's a it's a there's a distinction that we can make there it's certainly, the things that are happening here are, are definitely evil. Um, not saying that, but just how everything happens, you'll see. Well, let's just get to it. We're going to read the whole chapter and then pray. If you've never read Judges 19 before, be warned, this is brutal. Um, just understand that this is not approved of behavior, but this is real behavior. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that happens when a people is given over to their sinful desires. So, the reading of God's word beginning at verse 1 of chapter 19. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and there was some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him a servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with this morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and the servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He arose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. 
And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, but, or excuse me, of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. But we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. And so they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them in the house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning at Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I, want, I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me in his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and a young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him in his house, and he gave him and he gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the day began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and he opened the door of the house. He went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces. And he sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been done in the day of the people of Israel came up from the day that it, the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Holy God, we we know that sin leads to death. And we know that if not for restraining grace and providential kindness, that all people all over the whole world would run and rush headlong into sin. And this account that we read is harsh, it's horrible, we know, Lord, but we ask that you would help us to learn from it and take from it what it is that you want us to know. Help us have understanding, Holy Spirit. We need you. and. We pray that you would sanctify us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, well, the horrors of this account are myriad, aren't they? It's hard to read. If you're paying attention to what happened here, it's shocking. It's the sort of thing that is unbelievable on some level. Not that this is fantasy or something like that. It really happened. 
and it almost leads to the total annihilation of the tribe of Benjamin. We'll see that as we read through the rest of Judges, um, the next two chapters. But this account is unreal in the sense that the account is shocking. It's like, and, and many of you are probably too young for this, but the imagery of like two Boeing 60, or 767 airliners crashing into the Twin Towers, it was in a way unreal. Or you shocking. And you may have seen this. I know we talked about it in a small group. At least one of the guys in our group knew about it. Um, you know, right now in Afghanistan, the Taliban is taking over, and the people are trying to flee from the city. And so people, young men, usually, it's, it's weird if you look at the, the videos from this, it's just young men. I don't know where the women are or what, maybe they're hiding already or something. But young men are, there's these big military planes from the United States that are leaving, and so you have these people jumping on the plane and they're hanging on the, the wings of it and then the, um, the landing gear, and the planes take off, and when the planes are up high up in the air, they're going 100 miles per hour, the people can't hold on anymore and they're falling off the plane. It's shocking, it's unreal yet it's happening. And this account is perhaps even more shocking than those things. And when you realize this, perhaps it's even worse, even more shocking. This isn't Canaan. This isn't the Philistines. This isn't, even, you know, obviously it's not this because it's one that's written, but this isn't the United States of America. It's not England. This is the people of God who have done this. Not the church, but the church, the called out ones, they exist within this bigger group of the nation of Israel at this time, but it's the nation of Israel, the people that we would rightly call the people of God in that old covenant period, that are doing these atrocities. These are people who know the law of God. These are people who were given it within a few generations. The people in view here in Judges 19, for some of them, it was just their great, 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 great grandfathers, maybe a couple more generations removed, who were present when God visited with Moses on Mount Sinai and he gave them the law. Just a couple, few, you know, a, a, a numberable amount of generations from the people that were redeemed from Egypt. And this, it's a modern thing for us not to know our roots. For people even 300 years ago, they would be able to say, I'm an iron worker, and my father was an iron worker, and my father's father was an iron worker, and we came from this part of land, and we settled here. That was common for people to notice. That was just today when we don't really know our roots so much anymore. But it was that way for Israel then, too. These are people that out of all of the people on, on the earth at this time, they were the only people that could call themselves the people of God. And yet, here are these people with the law, and they are absolutely lawless. Sin is lawlessness. This is shocking. Let me make one point to you guys very clearly, hopefully tonight, in light of these things. And we need to hear this because there is, there's teaching within Christian circles gaining popularity right now because of the rank lawlessness in our culture here in the States and around the world, a doctrine called theonomy or Christian reconstructionism. Now, there are a lot of nuances to be aware of here, differences on specifics from different theonomic teachers, and not everything is bad about it. Uh, generally speaking, theonomy, this teaching, this doctrine called theonomy, simply means God's law, theos nomos, God's law, the, the word means. And God's law is good, of course, but theonomy as a system of doctrine teaches that there is much to gain from implementing God's law, specifically the judicial law given to Israel. In fact, they teach that God will bless a land simply because the laws are in place and follow. Right? If they're not followed, then of course not. But if the laws are there, and then they're followed, that a land will be blessed. But look what's happened here. 
listen, the law of God existing in the life of a community, apart from the work of regeneration in the life of the people in the community, the law of God in that context will only serve to condemn people in that group. Israel had the law, and look what they did here. What people need today, what people need in every age, if they're to live in a way that is pleasing to God, is the gospel. It's the gospel that changes the sinner's heart, not the law. The law is a means for us to see our sins so that we might run to the hope that's, that's offered to us in the gospel. But just setting up the law of God as a standard in the land isn't going to bring about holy living. It's not going to bring about a society in which people who love the Lord can live in peace. What gives God's people a peaceful and fruitful life in society is the providence of God. It's God's grace to his people, not simply the existence of the law of God made publicly known and and then enforced by the king or whoever is in charge. That's clear here in Judges. Simply having the law does not mean that godly living will ensue. We need the grace and the power that's given in the gospel. Now, Aside from that, considering the text, what's happening here, I want to kind of look at it in a few sections. No need to hash out all the fine details and the minutiae and the historical data of the text, but I prefer to just see the theological themes in the sections and to try to make the best use of our time. So I want for us to consider the chapter in three sections. And so if you're thinking of an outline, we're going to think of hospitality one, hospitality two, and then hostility. Hospitality one will be verses 1 through 16, or 15, I should say, and then hospitality 2 is 16 through 21, and hostility is verse 22 through 30. So let's turn our attention to the first section. So if you're looking at your Bible, we're going to be focusing on what's happening in verses 1 through 16 first, or 15. So we, we begin with a reminder of the state of the nation. They had no king. They neglected the reality that God was their king. In fact, they were living as if God wasn't even like a factor at all in any of their own uh, choices at all. And so the people are doing what's right in their own eyes, which is never a good idea. When a people lives on the premise that we just do whatever is right in our own eyes rather than looking to the subjective word of God, rather than looking to come under the good leadership of Yahweh, chaos at some level is going to follow. We've seen that over and over in Judges. And we meet two main people, the two main people of our story here very early on. First, we have an unnamed Levite once again, and he's sojourning once again. And we should understand something from this. This is communicating to us, in a way, the the state of Israel at, at a whole. The Levites were the priests. Of all the people that we would expect, if we're just generally expecting something, we should think that the Levites would be the ones who were close to Yahweh, close to God, since they're the ones administering in the tabernacle and officiating in the synagogues and the gatherings. That's why, of course, that in the New Covenant, that every Christian, we are told, is part of the priesthood of believers in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. We who are saved are all filled with the Spirit. We are all near to God. We're holy pri- a holy priesthood. We offer up our bodies as spiritual worship, Romans 12, uh, 2. We all know the Lord. Our collective bodies are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3. And the Levites were, in a sense, a type of true Christians in the New Covenant, in that they had this priestly function, which every Christian today has a priestly function, in the sense that we are able individually to offer worship to God because of the Spirit that lives inside of us. Basically, though, these 
priests since this, this Levite, these two that we've met now, who have abandoned their station and also have abandoned their worship of God, their right worship of God. And so it's the author of Judges is communicating to us just the state of Israel. So the people who were supposed to be the holy ones, the ones who were leading others in worship, have just abandoned their position. They have little to no regard for God's law. Israel is in a bad way right now. And this particular Levite takes to himself a concubine. And in this culture, a person might do this, and when they do it, they kind of are treating a woman, in this sense, like a second-class wife. Basically just using her for his own needs and not showing love or true care to her. It's true that women throughout history have been treated poorly. There is nothing in Scripture that teaches people to do that. In fact, the opposite could be said. Nevertheless, this Levite is not treating this woman as the kind of respect that a man should treat a woman. And we see that right from the start, just for the simple fact that he's kind of keeping her as a concubine. He's still his wife, but he's not, he's not treating her like he would a wife that he really loved. And that's just wrong. There's no justification for that at all. And of course, she isn't faithful to him or anything either. We read that in verse 2. She goes back to her father's house. So right after we meet her, she bounces on him. Something happens. We don't know the details. She goes to her father's house. She abandons him. And then we have the rest of the section of this back and forth pleading between the Levite and the father-in-law of, of his wife, uh, or his own father-in-law, his wife's father, because the Levite intends to go back uh, to her father-in-law's house so that he could speak kindly to her, we read. And in other words, and then take her and go back to where he lives. So at this point, though, and they're back in Bethlehem, which is in Judah, we meet the father-in-law, who is a picture of hospitality for us. And hospitality was extremely important in um, this culture and for the people of God, and it's extremely important for the people of God now as well. Of course, back then it was a bit different in comparison to now because you know they didn't even have hotels back then. You couldn't go to a city and stay in a local hotel. You had to depend upon the generosity and the kindness of the people that were there. And travelers were to be shown great kindness. The Oxford Dictionary defines hospitality as friendly and generous behavior towards guests. And the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, is filled with instruction and exhortation on hospitality. The qualifications for an elder, for a pastor, in other words, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, all demand that the, that the person be hospitable. All Christians are exhorted to be hospitable in Romans 12 and Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 4. All four gospel accounts talk about people being hospitable. So being hospitable is ultimately concerned with love for your neighbor. So the second table of the law. And so it's natural law, it's moral law in other words. But God's people specifically were especially expected to be hospitable because they knew something from divine revelation as well as just the, the light of nature on their hearts as well as just their conscience. They knew that the world belonged to God and that they were God's representatives in the world and so they should have known, above all, and more people, that they were to be hospitable. Leviticus 19, 33-34 says this. It says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so it's just simple to God. He says, You will be nice to people who are traveling. You will be hospitable. I am the Lord your God. 
you, Israel knew what it was like to be treated without hospitality by Egypt. Egypt persecuted them. They made them slaves. That's not what Israel was supposed to do to others. Nevertheless, they didn't listen very well. So the father-in-law in our story is certainly hospitable. He welcomes the Levites and his companions to his home, and he takes care of them for three days. And then he even compels the Levite to stay longer. And perhaps there's some reasoning here to like keep his daughter with him because his daughter wasn't being treated well by this man. Uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure, but at one point, at verse 10, the Levite decides that it's time for them to leave, and so they set out. And on the way, it's getting dark outside, and they're passing through these other cities, and one of the people in the Levite's company says, hey, look, we can go stay over here at Jebus, which eventually is going to be where Jerusalem is, where the temple is. And the Levite says, no, those aren't people who are from Israel. We're going to keep going on. And so they go on into the Benjam, the area of the, the land that had been given to the Benjamites, and they stay in a place called Gibeah. And that brings us to hospitality part two, verse 16 to 21. There is, in fact, someone here who is hospitable in this Israelite town, but it's not a Benjamite. He's an Ephraimite that is sojourning himself in Gibeah for work. And he's hospitable, whereas the people in Gibeah were not. And we get this ominous warning from him in verse 20. He says, Shalom lak, then he, which is, means peace be with you. And then he ends up telling this, this Levite and the concubine and, his little, and the party that was with him, just don't sleep in the courtyard. Come with me. Come to my house. Don't sleep in the courtyard. Nobody in Gibeah was showing hospitality to uh, this Levite and his, and his traveling companions. And then we get to the section called hostility. This is the section that Hosea refers to in Hosea 9.9 when he says, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. And so it actually starts out good. And if you look right at, at verse 20, or excuse me, 22, it says that they were making their hearts merry. You know, the wine was flowing. But then it's just a hard stop. Worthless fellows come from, from the city and they surround the house and they start to beat on it, demanding that the Levite comes out so they can know him, meaning they want to rape him. They want to sexually abuse the Levite, the man. Uh, these are good-for-nothing men. They're worthless, worthless scoundrels, and the Ephraimite seems to have known that they were out there. The whole scene reminds us of Sodom and the instance with Lot, doesn't it? It should be bringing to memory what happened back in Genesis 19. Uh, there it's a little bit different, of course, in that the men that Lot hid, they were two angels who were coming to ask, actually deliver Lot and rescue Lot and his family. And there the angels, they were going to sleep in the town square, but Lot was like, no, no, you can't sleep in the town square, come to my house. And then sure enough, in the Genesis account, it's more than just some men. We read in Genesis that all the men of the town come to take these two angels so that they can do the same thing, rape them, sexually abuse them. And Lot, in his foolishness, it's hard to believe, but he says, no, no, no take my two virgin daughters. But the, the, the crowd is so demanding, and, and they're not giving in to that, and the angels cause the crowd to be blinded. And it, the whole scene kind of stops there. Nobody gets damaged that night other than what happens the next day when you know, fire and brimstone rain down on the whole city. But this is a little bit different here. There's no angels here to intercede. And so the Ephraimite, so imagine what's happening. So these 
group of men, who knows how many men, but they're beating on the house. They're saying, give us that Levite. Give us that man who is traveling through here. And the Ephraimite who lives there, the older man, he says, no, don't do that. Take my virgin daughter instead and take his wife. Don't, don't do what you're going to do to the man. All that so the Levite himself wouldn't be harmed. It's just hard, I think, to think of how such conclusions were landed upon by this guy, right? I mean, I have three daughters and a wife. I can't imagine a scenario in which I would offer up any of them so that I wouldn't be harmed. I mean, if it meant that no harm would come to them, then I would gladly put myself in that situation. So how could this even be the case here? The second half of verse 24 is interesting. We read that the Ephraimite says, violate them, meaning his daughter and this man's wife. And he says, but just against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So a couple of things here. For one, it kind of seems like he's wanting to remove culpability off himself. He says, to the, to the crowd, he says, when he gives them the daughter and the wife, he says, do to them what, se- excuse me, what seems good to you. Well, like he's not saying rape them or whatever. He's saying do to them what seems good to you. But that's not going to vindicate him before God by any means. He thinks maybe he's washing his hands from this, but he's still giving people that he actually should be protecting over to this mob. But what's the reason for this? What's the rationale behind this corrupt and evil way of thinking? It could be a sinful and broken view of women, uh, that women are worth less than men, that they aren't equal, that they're just property. Certainly, women have been treated like that in the course of history. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's a rejection of women being made in the image of God. Women are just as valuable and just as important as men. A woman was made for man, right? Eve was taken from a rib of Adam, and then from that, all women now, all, excuse me, all men now are made from women. All women give birth to men and women. So the notion that women are just possessions and that they could be disregarded, even if that is what was believed here in this culture, it's absolutely wrong. There's no biblical justification for it at all. But I'm saying this also, say that we really don't know if that's what they believed if that's what the Ephraimite believed. Certainly the Levite, he kind of acts, he acts like that. He's a wicked man beyond measure. The Bible does teach that men and women have different roles in society in specific places. Uh, men had responsibilities, but everywhere I see in the Bible, women are to be cared for and loved by men who are in their lives. Husbands, love your wife as Christ has loved the church. Fathers were to provide for their daughters and to be a protective, a protective covering for them until they were married. And then when they were married, then they no longer are under the father's responsibility, but they come one flesh with their husband. And their husband then is to take care of them. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is wicked. And I don't know for certain that it's the case that the Ephraimite thought that women didn't matter or something like that. Certainly, again, the Levite is suspect there, treating his wife like a concubine, a second-class wife, as it were. But we're dealing, this is the Ephraimite who is talking. And there probably is some corrupt anthropology going on here in which women are viewed less than men. But I suspect that it's also more than that, too. Because he says, violate them, meaning the daughter and the wife. And then he says, but don't do this outrageous thing, meaning the violating of the man. Part of me wonders if this unspeakable behavior on the part of the Ephraimite, something that, I, again, I just can't imagine any man doing, giving his daughter and the wife to a, a mob of people so that he wouldn't have to be harmed. 
part of me wonders if this is also born out of a, a, repre- a reprehension over the sin of homosexuality. That homosexuality is such an offensive sin that it would somehow be better for this to happen than for that to happen. And we, know, we all know that all sexual sin is condemned by God. We also, at the same time, know that homosexuality is especially a wicked sin in the eyes of God. Fire and brimstone rain down in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, because of a lack of hospitality mixed with gross homosexuality, rampant. In Romans 1, homosexuality is associated with people being given over to reprobate minds. Uh, The Apostle Paul calls it unnatural there. We can't say with certainty that the motives behind the actions of the Levite and the Ephraimite what they are, other than self-preservation, which again is just foolish and wicked. I, I, I mean, as bad, even if we're to say that homosexuality is somehow worse than just regular sexual immorality, there, there's, there's, no, there's no way that I can, as a, as a man or as a, as a husband and a dad, conceive of offering up of my wife and child in place of a man. I, I just, I can't, it doesn't work in my mind, doesn't commute, compute at least. Part of me at least wants to think that it's not a corrupt and evil anthropology here that sees no value in women, but that the men here are at least trying in some way to maintain some form of righteousness, even though they would be in the wrong, even though I can't, ima- again, I can't imagine a situation in which I wouldn't die trying to either kill these people that are trying to harm my wife and daughter, or you know, even letting, allowing them to let a finger on, on them, or even a stranger's wife and daughter, right? Like, I can't imagine, just maybe a few weeks ago, we're doing ministry out in front of the Planned Parenthood, and a man and a woman pull over the car, and they're screaming at each other, and the dude is, like, hitting her, and she jumps out, and she runs, and so we all go running after her to help her. I mean, we don't know this woman, even. But, again, it's just, I can't imagine a world in which, oh, that, okay, well, it's a woman, so it's okay. And I don't know if that's what's going on here or not, or, again, if they're trying to just say that, you know, homosexuality is worse than even doing this other thing, but it's just, it's just crazy. It is just the height of sin, and look how evil and how corrupt this nation is at this point in time. I mean, if, if people were thinking properly, the neighborhood men should have arrived to help defend the wife and the daughter from these worthless fools, but there's none of that. It just happens. And it does, in fact, get worse from here, so who knows? Maybe it is just really an evil anthropology. Anthropology is just the, the doctrine of man, the teaching of men. Maybe, maybe this really did just happen because women weren't valued. Again, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. So if that's what they thought and believed, they were dead wrong and in, in, dead, in, in sin for that. But apparently, and thankfully if this is the case, um, the daughter is left out of the whole ordeal, but the Levite ends up tossing his wife outside and she's abused all night until the morning. Were they just inside the house listening to it the whole time? How, how could he be inside, not bound, and just not do anything? I mean, the horrors of forgetting that God is your king is on full display. The morning comes, verse 26. And the woman manages to go to the door of the house after a night of abuse, and she falls on the door. I just can't believe this Levite. I mean, if there is ever a story that historians might consider leaving out of the history books, it would be this one, because it's just infuriating. 
because at, at the same time, though, the reason why it's here, we are getting a picture of how incapable the law of God is to change a person, right? Otherwise, man, I mean, let's blot this account out of history because it is just the height of depravity. So this Levite, he doesn't rush to the door to scoop up his wife in tears and regret. Which, I mean, maybe at that point it would be a little redeemable. Maybe if that was what happened. But that's not what happened. He's callous. He acts as if he doesn't care about her at all. Regardless as to what people in that society believed about women, this Levite is clearly rejecting the value of this woman, his wife even. It's not just a random woman even. even. If it was a random woman, this wouldn't be okay. But it's even worse because this is his wife. So he tells her, after a whole night of being abused, get up, let us be going. It's like he's mad at her even. In a very real sense, this woman has saved his life. I mean, she took the abuse that he was going to receive, right? If, if she wasn't put out there, they were coming there for him. And she took it all. And she doesn't respond to him, and so he picks her up, and he puts her on his donkey, and he goes home. And of course, we, what we read, when he gets home, he takes a knife, and he cuts her into 12 pieces, one piece for every um, tribe of Israel, so that he can send a piece of her body to each region. And there's a shocking detail left out of the text. Like, when did she die? Was she already dead? when he had the idea to cut her in pieces? Did he kill her at that point so he could then chop her up? We're not told. The story is, is shocking. It's, this happened. And it did actually shock the people in Israel. Verse 30 tells us that all who saw it, meaning the, the body part that was delivered to their, their area, said such a thing has never happened or been seen before from the day that the people of Israel came out of Egypt until this day. So they take counsel together, and the next two chapters are the result of this act here, and nearly the whole tribe of the Benjamites is wiped out. But the wickedness of this Levite, and all of this extends beyond simply showing us that the law of God won't mandate morality. And it does, we do see that here, right? That the law of God, Israel had the law of God, it, doesn't, it didn't bring with it morality, just simply having it. Because in a way, though, this Levite's actions actually mock the gospel of God and at the same time provide a vehicle in which we can reflect on what the gospel is. You see, his marriage was an utter failure in contrast to what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage isn't like some culturally defined institution where you have today, you know, in our culture, a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman, a man can get divorced from a wife with a no-fault divorce and be no, no problem at all. That's not what marriage is. We don't get to define it. It was set up in the garden for a purpose. Believers, people who are Christians, must maintain that marriage has a divinely determined purpose. It is called holy matrimony for a reason. Because the Lord has set apart the one man, one woman, the marital bond as a, as a one flesh relationship to communicate spiritual realities. A man's marriage to a woman, a woman's marriage to a man, it is more than just about having a family and you know, having children, that comes with it, but it's also about communicating spiritual realities. Those realities include God's deep love for his people and the exclusivity of the Christ church bond as an ordinary arena of salvation and the faithful devotion of the covenant community that it owes to its covenant Lord. Now, far from being a changeable cultural phenomenon, marriage is the means by which the created order depicts the relationship between Jesus 
and his church. Every marriage is supposed to be a portrayal of Jesus' love for the church. And just think, this Levite was the exact opposite of how Christ loved the church. That's the exhortation to men, by the way, that men should love their wives as Christ loved the church in Ephesians 5. The Levite, though, he let his wife suffer so that he wouldn't have to suffer. He let her die so that he wouldn't have to die. But Christ Jesus went to the cross for his bride, the church, so that the church wouldn't die eternally. So the scriptures testify that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends, Jesus says in John 15. And he calls us more than friends, even. He makes us co-heirs with him. What, what he earned by his righteous life, we get to share it. We are one flesh, as it were. That's the parallel. What he earned and he gets, we get because the church is his bride. Not because we deserved it or earned it, but because of what Jesus did and who Jesus is. The Levite's actions fail to be what a marriage is to represent. In fact, it's the exact opposite of it. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's reprehensible. We're reminded from this failed priest that we need a great high priest who will love us and let us share in, in his blessings, one who protects us and cares for us. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians in the first chapter, verse 19. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then just a few verses before that in the introduction, he says this in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why in the heavenly places? Because of Christ. Because we're, we're united to Christ. We're attached to Christ. Just like how a man and a woman are supposed to be attached together in marriage, Christ and the church are attached together like that. His covenant will love toward us. Friends, when we see evil in the world, whether recorded in the Bible or with our own eyes, may they be reminders for us to look to Christ, to find hope in Him, joy in Him, peace in Him, and true contentment, because without Him, we would be lost. Let's pray. Our Father, this account is shocking to us. I even now, I, I just can't believe that this Levite would do it, what he did, and this Ephraimite would do what he did. But we know, Lord, that if not for your restraining providence in our lives, that we would do unspeakable and unthinkable sins as well. So help us, Lord, to have all of our confidence, not in our own ability to do what's right, but only in you and the grace and the strength that you provide. Lord, we thank you for the love that Christ has for his church, especially in the light of this tra tragedy in which this Levite had no love for his wife. It would be more appropriate to say that he hated her. But we thank you, Christ, that you don't hate your bride and that you died so that we wouldn't have to experience eternal death. And some of us even won't even have to experience death at all. Um, so we look back to when we look forward to when you will come again and we'll have new bodies at that point. But Lord, um, as we consider just the evil in this world, let it be a reminder to us of your holiness and of the great work that you've done to redeem your bride, the church. We praise you and we need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.